Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Barry Kernfeld about his book, Pop Song Piracy, Disobedient Music Distribution Since 1929, published in 2011 by the University of Chicago Press. The thrust of Kernfeld's argument focuses on the cat and mouse game between pop song monopolists, those that own song copyrights, and those who would profit from disobediently reproducing and distributing said songs. The typical pattern involves monopolists enacting prohibitions against piracy, coupled with the inability to enforce these prohibitions, failed attempts to contain pirated song distribution networks, and finally, the co-optation of disobedient systems into the legitimate music industry, and consequently, the assimilation and end of pirated forms. Beginning with bootleg song sheets in 1929, Kernfeld moves through the history of popular song piracy in the 20th and into the 21st century, including fake books for jazz musicians, music photocopying, pirate radio, especially as it existed in Europe, illegal copying of phonograph records and tapes, especially cassette tapes, and compact discs, finally focusing on digital song sharing in the 21st century. Although Kernfeld doesn't make the connection explicit, it is clear that the perpetual battle against illegal song production is similar to other types of disobedient behaviors in U.S. society. Specifically, the cat-and-mouse game played by monopolists and disobedient song distributors is much like the games played by those producing and distributing illegal drugs and those attempting to eradicate them. Also, our perceptions that each new round of illegal music distribution is unique from others in our history when, in fact, they are quite similar, is akin to our perceptions that each new round in our battles against illegal migration is unique when, in fact, we seem to be fighting the same battles continuously. Barry Kernfeld lives in State College, Pennsylvania, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Barry, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Hello. Thank you for... (laughs) Well, thanks for being on the show. Um... Why don't you tell us a little bit about your biography first, where you're from, how you got to where you are, etc. Where I'm from is uh, San Francisco. I came east in 1975 to do musicology at Cornell, uh, thinking I had no choice but to do a classical topic and discovering that there were a whole bunch of closet jazzers on the faculty and ended up doing a Ph.D. in musicology on uh, improvisation in the Miles Davis sextet. Mm-hmm. And there was no realistic prospect for actually having a job in musicology. Uh, and my wife got a good job. She's a historian, teaches at Penn State here in State College, PA. And so I have carved out a career since the 1980s uh, mainly writing and editing books about jazz and popular music. Play saxophone and clarinet on the side. Not that I'm a great player, but good enough that it really helps my writing a lot to be able to hear and know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and do you work at Penn State as well? Um, in 2005, I started working in the archives half-time just to okay. do something different. I got a little burned out on 30-something years of nothing but music and started to get scared that, God, what if I stopped you know, loving music? That would be the most horrible thing ever. So I, I started doing something else a bit, and now you know, that worked out well. That was a really good decision. Mm-hmm. And how, how did you come uh, to write this book, Pop Song Piracy? Um, I was... I started a project on fake books. I suppose I should say something for your people who wouldn't know what a fake book was, uh, or you think everybody will know. Well, oh, I, I think I think we might get into it as we discuss pop talk piracy because you do write about fake books in there. All right. Uh, anyhow, I started. I've been playing jazz using fake books in coffee shops, bars for years. Uh, started wondering about their history. Um, stumbled onto this bootleg origins, started working on that, and 
I came upon a, what was it? It was a appeals court ruling on a man named John Santangelo who had a bootleg song sheet. Well, I had no idea what a bootleg song sheet was and started looking into that, and that blew up into this whole book over the course of several years, moving from jazz into pop music and into many different forms of bootlegging and piracy and other unauthorized distribution of music. It was Mm -hmm. sort of a question leading to another question leading to another question, and very much fun that way. So at the risk of awkwardness, why don't you tell us what a fake book is? Okay, sure. (laughs) Uh, No, not awkward at all. A lot of people don't know. I mean, musicians, oh, yeah, but non-musicians, I'm almost always telling them. Uh, A fake book is a compilation of shorthand versions of songs and originated in the 1940s for uh, nightclub musicians working in cocktail lounges, and somebody would come up and say, can you play uh, All of Me? And Well, maybe not every single musician knew All of Me, but if he had this little index card with a compressed version of All of Me on it, he could fake it. Um, it started out as a legitimate service uh, for radio, and then some gangsters, quote-unquote gangsters, started compiling these these index cards into a, a, into volumes, three tunes on each page, a thousand tunes in a book, and selling these under the table. And a lot of musicians bought them because a lot of musicians found that it helped them uh, satisfy audience requests. So technically, are, are fake books illegal? They had been for their first Uh, 20-something years in pop music until publishers began bringing out authorized one with licensing fees paid, and they continue to be widespread illegal in jazz because it's a smaller market and there wasn't the same sort of pressures to get rid of the uh, illegal ones. Many, Mm -hmm. many circulate still in jazz, entirely uh, illegal from a licensing point of view. So let's use that as a transition to, to get into your book. All right. um, let's start off, as you do in your introduction, with some of your more uh, maybe theoretical ideas. For instance, you say the, the, the battle over um, piracy takes a pattern of monopoly and struggle. What do you mean by that? Um, I think the whole history of the music industry, not only piracy, but legitimate, legitimate uh, uh, authorized products of the music industry is an extremely uh, combative one. Uh, often over, uh, there, there's antitrust moves, there's uh, patent uh, disputes over the technology through which uh, music is delivered. Uh, and a lot of this is just business as usual. But there are There have been times when somebody outside of the industry, outside of authorized channels, comes up with a really nice new product. And persistently, because the industry has a monopoly on their existing product, they control the rights to it and the distribution of it, they're unwilling to adopt this new product, whatever it might be. We're just talking in a theoretical way. I can give you examples later. Mm-hmm. Um, and what tends to happen is people want the new product. They don't care about whether somebody is going to sell it to them or refuse to sell it, will refuse to sell it to them. If there's a refusal, they'll get it some other way. And hence these sort of shadow industries, bootleg industries, pirates, music industries emerge to to uh, bring the new product into uh, to make it available so uh, the in the in the resolution then 
to uh, piracy, you suggest there are there are two typical ways um, that, that this is resolved. One is assimilation, and the other is obsolescence. Yeah, I, I think that's it, it's pretty inevitable that the monopolists, the people who try to control the older and what has become the less desirable product, give in. It may take a brief period of time. It may take decades in some instances, before they give in. But I think inevitably they give in. That would be assimilation. And they come out with their own version of the new product. And usually that knocks out the bootleggers because the the, the uh, authorized industry, the legitimate industry, has a much better, much more highly developed distribution system. Um, so that's one ending is assimilation into business as usual. The other is obsolescence, which is to say they're battling over something. There's the uh, legitimate folks and the uh, unauthorized folks. And then some new product comes along and nobody cares anymore. And it just falls away. The whole battle just mm-hmm. disintegrates. And then there are there are two ways, it seems, that um, that that piracy works, or the, the reproduction, the illegal reproduction, or what you call the disobedient reproduction of 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 mainstream of of legal things. You say there's equivalency versus transformational use. What are those? Um, all righty, uh, I should say also there's a, is a. I should start by saying there's a concept called transformative use that has to do with composition and you stole my song. And when I've been talking about this book to people, uh, there's often a confusion. They think maybe I've written a book about uh, people stealing other people's conceptions of songs, but I'm not talking about this. This is a book about uh, the undisputed reuse of the same song. It's not a question of did you alter it parody it, sample it, and those all sorts of things which are real important. So that would be transformative use. Okay. Um, and that legal word has appeared sometimes in cases. I'm calling this transformational use, not that that really means anything different as far as the particular words, uh, but just, just to try to distinguish it a little bit. And what I'm distinguishing between equivalency and transformational use is equivalency is merely copying an existing product in the same form in which it exists. Uh, the most clear-cut example, I suppose, would be a counterfeit CD, where you have not only the same digital uh, signal copied onto the disk, in, embedded on the disk, but also an attempt to imitate the cover art and anything else that would go along with it. That, that's, that's equivalency. What I've found happens most of the time in these disputes is that the product in dispute is not an equivalent one. It's in some way a transformational one. It may be transformational from a technological point of view, or it may be transformational from the way in which people use it. And there's many different possibilities. I don't know how much we'll get into that as we're talking. Uh, But I think it's a profound difference. And what's so important is that copyright does not take into account transformational use in any way. Copyright only considers equivalency. Everything is equivalent. If, if I don't know what the m- smallest possible copyright thing was, but I get the impression that only a few bars of something taken carried into another piece are enough to constitute a copyright violation if the court deems it so. Uh, it doesn't matter in what format that music is distributed. It doesn't matter if it facilitates new uses for listeners. All that matters is that some musical idea is perceived to be a copyright violation. 
transformational use has nothing to do with copyright. As far as I could tell, the legal system could care less about it. But it has to do with reality and how people use music. And a lot of my book is tried to sort of be a counterweight to all the books that obsess about music and copyright. Because I think, actually, most people don't care. <laughs> you gave us an example of equivalency. What is an example, a modern example of transformational use? Well, that would be the MP3 file, for sure. That's the best example. It changes the album format, which was dominant until the late 1990s. It changes the album format in so many uh, profound ways. Uh, by allowing people to just have one track, the one that they want from an album and not have to buy the same, the whole thing, uh, by allowing the music to be moved around the world instantaneously as a digital file, by allowing it to be searched and researched in the ways that we do reference work on the Internet. Um, in allowing people to manipulate uh, that track in uh, musical compositional ways, if they wish. But those, those are, I think, just some of the changes. There's a portability about it, a mobility about it, that completely transforms what the CD was or is. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, before we get to, to the chapter specifically, you seem to prefer the term disobedience to criminality. Yeah. Why? Um, disobedience, of course, uh, I, I mentioned in the book, and I should say here, I'm not talking about heroic Martin Luther King uh, civil disobedience. <laughs> uh, this is just music, and people have gone to jail for it, but... Uh, I don't think anyone's died for uh, pop song piracy. Uh, so, so I do want to be a little careful about using the word disobedience, and maybe it's some sort of public disobedience rather than civil, civil disobedience and all the things that connotes. But I think it's, it's often not criminal. I think it's said to be criminal, and there are many, in fact, legitimate uses for disobedience in the face of obstinate intransigence on the part of the music industry in refusing to uh, accept uh, viable new forms of music distribution and forcing those forms underground. So then you start your history of of pop song piracy discussing uh, the near-perfect distribution system of Tin Pan Alley. Um, Lay that out for us. Tin Pan Alley is the, the name used for uh, American popular song uh, writers, publishers, performers, uh, all wrapped up together from, I, I think, about the 1890s into the first quarter of the 20th century, roughly-ish, uh, based in New York City. Uh, Several buildings. I think the most famous one was the, was the Brill Building, and they set up a, sort of a musical equivalent to Standard Oil. They set up a, a monopoly system in which uh, they, through uh, the ASCAP, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, uh, through the publishers who belong to this organization through the songwriters, through the uh, Music Publishers Protective Association, the MPPA, a little less well-known than uh, ASCAP, they set up a system in which they wrote the music, they owned the music, they distributed the music, and the vehicle for all this was sheet music. It was paper. I guess that's important to say. 
because uh, until the 1970s, to copyright something was to, to file a piece of paper. Music existed on paper, and only secondarily was music found. Um, all of the monies were invested in copyright. And in sheet music, sorry, all the monies were invested in sheet music. And in the 1920s, popular music came along in recordings, and AM radio developed. And then at the end of the 1920s, uh, musical films, movies with, with sound came out. and the whole system started to fall apart of sheet music ruling the roost. And yet, the people who had Tin Pan Alley, the people who, who uh, were uh, in, in that as songwriters, as publishers, uh, as licensing agencies, as uh, music associations, Collectively, they continued to own the songs that came to be disseminated in new technological ways. And, and these battles developed as this perfect distribution system began to be challenged by new distribution systems. I think the most important uh, thing that happened for, for the bootlegging that I talked about, is that people started listening to the radio, going to films, and the piano fell out of use. I think the sort of turn of the 19th to beginning of 20th century uh, stereotype of gathering around the piano in the home to sing was replaced by the more passive form of people listening music uh, on a device or going to a theater and, and watching uh, musical performers or uh, also uh, you know cutting across that was professional performance and concerts all the time but I, I think in terms of uh, audience not the professionals who were making the music but the general audience who was listening to pop music, I think there was a huge change uh, in moving away from the piano. And in my particular story, what happened there was people didn't need the music anymore. They just wanted the lyrics. And these song sheets came out. So this is this is the, the beginning uh, of your your story, right? right? The the song sheet. What is a song sheet again? Um, a song sheet. Oh, well, it has a legitimate background uh, in nineteenth uh, century and even earlier uh, sheets of lyrics that were distributed often, you know, maybe with a political uh, theme or uh, something to do with uh, patriotism in a war. Uh, there were many legitimate song sheets. Uh, the bootleg ones started coming out in 1929. And they were initially newspaper-sized sheets of paper with a whole bunch of songs on a single sheet. And these sheets sold for a nickel or a dime. And they tried keep up with whatever was the latest song. They came out frequently. Uh, they were really kind of throwaways. I managed to to buy a few of them from dealers and uh, you know sort of antiquarian dealers and they're completely falling apart, just old acidic colored paper that you have to be careful to unfold it or it will just disintegrate in your hand. So uh, what happened, as, as, as I interpret it, it, 
is people could buy one piece of sheet music for what was then the price of 30 or 35 cents. Where they could get a, and that would give them the music and the lyrics. Or they could buy a song sheet, just the lyrics, no music, for a nickel or a dime, with a whole bunch of tunes on that sheet. So for the public, it was kind of a duh. I mean, why would they spend all that money on sheet music, especially if they didn't play piano or any musical instrument and they just wanted the lyrics? What would they do with the lyrics? Would somebody else would play and they could all just sing along? Is that how it works? Um, my most honest answer is we have no idea how it worked. <laughs> I looked around a lot trying to figure out how song sheets were used, and I have a few clues, but I don't really know. So largely supposition is that People weren't playing at all. They were singing along with the radio or mm. singing by themselves just as you and I walk around humming a tune. And that the the, the sort of active music making that we associate with uh, uh, the salon era and with pianos in the home in America uh, was falling away. I think that's a long-term thing that's, that's gone much further these days uh, than it was then. But I, I think that was the start of a much more passive relationship between individuals and music and much more of music being delivered into the home, both through records, the popular music, and from the new AM radio. So what they did with the lyrics, I'm guessing mainly they just wanted to remember them to sing along with whatever pop tunes were were popular at that moment, you know, the ever-changing repertory of popular music. And, uh, well, anyhow, go on from there. I think I've said enough about that. Well, so then, um, uh, well, why don't you tell the, you already mentioned him once, tell the, the story of John... Than yeah. when it comes to song sheets. Um, song sheets turned out to be a huge success, a huge underground success. Um, there's documentation that they were selling in at least the tens of thousands per week. Um, that there's evidence of seizure of you know a million copies of such and such. Uh, so there was a large audience for these things, and a man, uh, an, an Italian immigrant, who was working as a bricklayer, I believe, if I'm remembering my own book, uh, changed his career and got into uh, putting out these song sheets. And it was so successful, he, he focused on it. Later in life, he went into legitimate business and became better known as a uh, uh, publisher of comic books. But during this period, he started out uh, pointingly, pointedly uh, distributing song sheets, setting up factories in the Northeast, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, moving around, getting arrested several times, getting convicted several times, ultimately going to jail. He seems to have treated all that as the cost of doing business and that it was lucrative nonetheless. And he also, you know, who knows, it's really hard to disentangle his sort of uh, authorized biography, which is all we know about him, from what his real motives were. At least he claims to have had a, a real legitimate feeling for putting these things out, that he thought it was silly for everyone to have to buy sheet music and spend all that money when no one wanted the music, that he uh, 
he recognized, and the, the sales bring out that he was right, he recognized that people just wanted lyrics. The music publishers were too hard-headed to put out lyrics only, and I should say something about that in a moment. Um, but he was going to do it anyway. He tried to get licensing agreements with the music publishers. They refused time and again over the course of years. And finally, the end of this story is that it was one of assimilation as well. Ultimately, he began to get permission to put out authorized song lyrics. He began to get licensing agreements with publishers. And the whole battle evaporated, and he became a legitimate businessman. And if I remember correctly from, from your story, uh, he claimed at least all along that he was trying to be legitimate, that he would, he would pay royalties and such. That's right. And this is one of the things that has happened time and again, not just in this dispute, but in other ones, is that the music publishers, even if they see how nice the new product is, have been really short-sighted about being willing to take it into their business model, whether it's an MP3 file or a fake book or, in this case, the first time around, a compilation of song lyrics. They just can't get past this math, which I think is a false math. And that is the presumption that each sale of a bootleg object equals the price, the value of whatever legitimate objects are embedded in that bootleg object. So, for example, let's say we have for a dime a newspaper-sized song sheet with 100 tunes on it. From the music publisher's mentality, 100 tunes, each selling at 35 cents each, is, am I doing the math right, $35. Mm -hmm. So each 10-cent song sheet equals $35 in lost sales by their way of thinking and very quickly extrapolating if this is how they come out with these hysterical sums if somebody sells 10,000 song sheets then the industry industry screams piracy bootlegging we've lost millions of dollars in sales as if as if people would have gone out and spent $35 during the, during the Depression for sheet music. I mean, it's completely absurd and unrealistic bit of math. Mm -hmm. um, it, that, that sort of thing car has carried over into, into the modern era with uh, alleged billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar losses of legitimate CD sales in the face of uh, unauthorized MP3. Uh, distribution. But what happens is uh, I think they're unwilling ever to accept a new form of music distribution in which the new object is less expensive than the object they're currently selling. They, that's just a disastrous thing for the music industry. Mm -hmm. for the recording industry, for the publishing industry, whichever aspect of it is. And they're unwilling to unwilling to go there until years pass and everybody tells them how dumb they're being. And finally, they give in. They gave in to Steve Jobs with iTunes. They gave in 70 years earlier to John Santangelo and a few others with legitimate song music. Song lyric magazine. So then, the end of of song sheets 
is both assimilation and obsolescence because of you know the new electronically driven media? No, I think it was assimilation without obsolescence. I think for a very long time, not not up to our current era today, but for a very long time, people were buying song lyrics as an adjunct to listening to music on the radio and listening to records. It's an unknown area, as I said. I've, I've hit a wall trying to find out about it. Maybe some brilliant one of your listeners will be able to figure out how to go about this. I have talked to people in many fields trying to figure out, you know, what's the story with these song lyric magazines? What was the audience for them? But what we do know is that they flourished at least through the 1960s. And they operated alongside the technological delivery of music via radio and recordings. People were buying uh, pop music, rock and roll lyrics. And actually, if you think about it today and how much lyrics have proliferated on the Internet, it's something that people continue to do. Uh, They're no longer through these magazines but they're, I think, even more available than they ever were. You can hit any tune you want and find the lyrics to it on the Internet. At least I have. I've never failed to find the lyrics to a tune I wanted on the Internet, and often meticulously done. Uh, so so I think that's actually ramped up and maintains uh, its, its presence alongside the delivery of the music. An interesting... Uh clue or to, to the question of how they use them um, and I think you did this looking at advertisements it, it appeared that a lot of these are being sold to women isn't that right yes, during that era the, the advertisements in them there of course they had no advertisements early on because they were bootleg and right. uh, they couldn't possibly accept advertise well advertisers wouldn't dare to to be affiliated with them but once they became legitimized they started having ads and the ads are overwhelmingly oriented towards women, uh, uh, secretarial things, cosmetic things, weight loss, uh, uh, teaching yourself uh, music, various things that, that women are the audience. But again, I ask people in women's studies, you know, hey, what's going on here? Well, they never even heard of Song Sheep. And so, uh, yes, that, that was a use. There was some use in choral societies. Uh, mm-hmm. which is to say, that's one you had asked earlier, well, did somebody play? That that would be one, I think, lesser use, less important use, but one use that is documented in which rather than buying sheet music for everyone, they would buy sheet music for the pianist, and then all the chorus members would just have song sheets with the lyrics on them and sing along. So then jumping ahead a little bit, um and we've talked about fake books, but how is the story of, of fake books similar to the song sheet story? Uh, yeah, it's it's really identical. The only difference being that fake fake books are for a musical audience; they're for musicians, and uh, song sheets are for a general audience for anybody who wants to listen. But it was the same thing. Uh, there were uh, these musicians wanted to have these these books because it, it it helped their careers, it helped them keep jobs. If they could come into a club, somebody requested a song, and they could play it. They didn't have to carry around piles of sheet music. They could just have these concise volumes. It was a real practical thing to have and bring into the nightclub where you were playing. Um, it elicited the same sorts of stuff that happened with fake books. Uh, FBI investigations, a ramping up of uh, legal prosecution, uh, even to the extent eventually having uh, trials for conspiracy against the United States of America, uh, which, you know, wasn't funny for the people in them, but uh, <laughs> it's, you know, just the absurdity of it is, is, is funny uh, from, from our perspective, I think. Uh, prosecutions, uh, a few people going to jail, and then ultimately the monopolist capitulating and 
the first fake book came out in 1949. In 1970, pop music publishers started to put out their own fake books. So it was the same story of assimilation into business as usual. So there, as you say, with many of these, there's the the attempt at prohibition, and when that fails, uh, assimilation comes yes. in. Yes. Yeah. There's there's the suppression. It's it's so hard to pr- suppress something that's really an attractive thing that people want to use. And here, I mean, in a way, for the fake books, it's even more intense because not only was it something that musicians wanted to use, it was something they needed keep their gigs. You know, there are a few mm-hmm. exceptional musicians who know thousands and thousands of pop songs and keep, keep them all in their head. I think, like, Hank Jones, the pianist, the jazz pianist who died not too long ago, I think he was one of the most famous ones for just this encyclopedic, encyclopedic repertory in his head. There aren't a lot of people like that, even highly, highly skilled musicians still can use a fake book if somebody calls for a tune and they don't quite remember it. It's really nice to put that up on the stand and and uh, play it before you fake it. So then, as you, as you mentioned, the, the, the fake books are still around, especially in jazz. It's, it's that the, the industry must not feel threatened by them, or they don't feel like there's any loss economically. Yeah, well, um, the Fake books are still around in several forms. They're they're widespread now in popular music. Uh, people, those, those are legitimate ones. There's there's bluegrass and country ones now, so they've crossed over into a, a new field. Uh, and things like Christmas music fake books. Um, the jazz ones are kind of both this and that. There there are new legitimate versions licensed versions of fake books that have jazz tunes. There's also uh, illegitimate ones that continue to circulate because they have tunes that are not available in the legitimate one or because in some ways they're done better than the legitimate ones. So yes, that, that continues. That's an ongoing thing. It's a small market, as you just said. It's probably not a threat. In the, to, a, to a large enough loss of sales or perceived loss of sales that anyone is doing anything about it. Okay, how about pirate radio, which especially has flourished in Europe? Um, tell that story, please. Yeah, that's, that's a really different one and distinguished from everything else in, in, in my book. Maybe I should just mention the, the, the subjects of the book because uh, it's a string of things that are not completely related. Um, It it started out uh, with uh, music on paper, song sheets and fake books, and later music photocopying became a a big point of contention. Uh, Then there's a whole succession of recordings, records, tapes, CDs, song sharing on digital files. Um, and all those are, are fairly closely related in some way, and all those, I think, started in America, even if they became global in terms of the battles. But pirate radio is a dispute that was in northwestern Europe, mainly Britain and Scandinavia. Uh, also the Netherlands. And it's very different because it involves a situation in which it wasn't so much a question of the, the, the object being distributed in a new format, but rather a question of broadcasting across national boundaries in order to bring an audience music that it was not receiving from its own national radio. So a very different situation, but I try to show, I'm not sure I want to go into it over the phone, I try to show that the same principles were involved of an attempt at monopoly and an 
efforts then to circumvent that monopoly. In northeast, northwestern Europe, it was that they had a very different conception of America, uh, of music, of radio than we have in America. Uh, not dominated by commercial considerations, but dominated by an intent to bring cultural betterment to the listener. Uh, they had programs of news, of drama, of religious programming, and musically almost entirely classical music. And so when the pop explosion hit in the 1960s, it was through pirate radio that Britain and Sweden and Norway and the Netherlands received a lot of the music that, frankly, people wanted to hear, general audiences wanted to hear. whole different kind of story. I don't know how much we can get into that on the phone. Uh, but again, the same ending to it, which was that pop music was assimilated into national radio for various countries. So is it because of this different nature of our conception of radio that we really haven't had pirate radio in the United States? Cause yes, I, I think so. Uh, in the United States, there's been a lot of pirate radio, but it's all been sort of amateur, uh, local little vanity pro uh, projects. There hasn't been any uh, widespread challenges to broadcasting into the United States from offshore into in order to deliver a music that we can't uh, hear here. Uh, the, the market forces have have dictated how op music operates in America. And that's, that's very different from a sort of intended benevolent uh, government slash cultural delivery of music into uh, or from the BBC, from uh, Swedish and Norwegian radio networks from the, uh, Holland's uh, peculiar uh, amalgamation of uh, government and cultural organization networks. Very different here. Is, is pirate radio still flourish in Europe? It does. Or in I fact, they... uh, as, as I understand it, it's, it's pretty much out of control. It's there. There's so many of them that. Uh, it's often land-based now, which is interesting. I don't know that it works on ships anymore. Then there was a complex little dance of uh, the, the uh, brutality of staying through uh, the weather in northeastern England, uh, in, uh, you know, trying to have a ship operate in the North Sea or to the west. You know, it, it, was, it was a hard thing have these ships dancing along territorial lines so that they could broadcast into England or into Scandinavia uh, with, without uh, being too close in and getting confiscated for uh, by, uh, violating territorial waters. Nowadays, all that is mostly people broadcasting surreptitiously from land-based pirate things. And there's just so many of them. It's been Possible to, uh, you know, it's what is it? Is it Medusa? Is that the metaphor? You, you know, there's too many heads. <laughs> Let's move up to uh, vinyl records. Then is it? Would vinyl come before cassettes? Yes. In the story, uh, uh, it actually uh, started in, in, with shellac records prior to the vinyl. That the the, uh, the uh, record. Piracy started in the late 1940s, but it wasn't widespread because it took so much uh, specific technology to make a uh, unauthorized copy of a record. And most of that record piracy was happening out the back door in established factories, which is to say they were printing extra copies uh, more than they were authorized to make and, and selling those. 
underhanded in underhanded ways. I think really the interesting bits of record piracy, recording piracy, I should say, start with tapes, with cassettes and cartridges, which raise the possibility of making your own anthologies of music and which also uh, could be copied in much easier ways. People could buy machines and set up their own under-the-table uh, enterprises. So one, a difference that you're saying then is that um, with records, whether they're shellac or vinyl, um, people aren't actually uh, making their own records, like reproducing their own records. These are coming directly from the factory? Mostly, yeah, during, in that early era, yes. It, uh, later on, uh, in the, in the, the in, you know, in the post-rock era, or in the rock era and afterwards, uh, in, inclusive of rock, uh, there were some large enterprises of, uh, you know, bootlegging, whatever, Led Zeppelin was a big one, lots, lots of the big rock groups, uh, also, uh, somebody like Frank Sinatra or Johnny Mathis, uh, there, there were, uh, Companies that were that, that were set up to do large-scale copying of vinyl records, but it was much easier to do that with with tapes and cartridges. And again, in chap, go ahead. And, uh, and again, uh, that sort of cycled all over again. Once CDs came in, you'll probably remember when they first came in. Nobody had the uh, had the machine to make a copy, but then over the years that started to come out, and after that, mass copying became possible, and so there was this acceleration in opportunities to make pirated or even counterfeit copies of hit albums, which is and as you as you've already mentioned, it um. There's this idea, especially with cassettes, where, you know, people make party tapes or, you know, car tapes. And uh, and every it always seems that the industry is always concerned that, you know, somebody's going to buy the record. Only one person will buy the record, and they'll copy it for 20 of their friends. Yes. Um, and that was with cassettes and, and with burning CDs. Yes, and there were efforts to suppress that, to make a tax on tapes, so that, that there was... There, it's just, uh, you know, I'm actually less interested in that aspect of it, the, 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 the direct copying thing. What really interests me is all this. I mean, I, certainly I write about it in the book because that's a part of what was happening and it, it, it fits into the whole story. But what interests me are the ways in which people found new uses that uh, the recording industry uh, refused to uh, endorse, only to later adopt them. And I guess in the in this era that we're talking about right at the moment, the, the main thing was self-made compilations that cut across label names or group names. Uh, you know, if you had... Say, if you wanted to make a Motown party tape, well, you know, nowadays you hear that on late night TV, you know, 999, Grand Central Station. <laughs> um, but for many years, you could only do that illegitimately because, it, again, this protective thing, this feel, feeling that there was going to be lost sales, this failure to perceive how much something would sell if they put out a whole tape or a whole disc of all number one tunes, well, that, that went against their marketing model. They, they had that B-side on each one of those. They wanted to sell each one of those individually. They didn't want to collect them on an album and, and just put all the best tunes out. And for years, that's how uh, the recording industry operated. But people wanted to have a party, so they made their own tape of the what they what were for them the best tunes 
you know, this Stevie Wonder and that Smokey Robinson and then the Four Tops and uh, one after the next. You can buy that kind of thing now, but you couldn't buy it then when those were happening. People made illicit dance tapes. It's another part of the story of bootlegging because it wasn't just people making it themselves. Unauthorized distributors popped up doing massive uh, press runs of these things, recognizing that a best hits album of Bob Dylan, of Motown, whatever, would really sell well. The industry wasn't going to put it out themselves, so why don't we do it, take a chance, make bucks on the side? And there was, you know, the same thing. Uh, police raids, FBI investigations, trials, all sorts of dancing around various uh, types of criminal charges and attempts to suppress this. And ultimately, assimilation is that now we get our late-night TV offers for exactly those same things. In Chapter 8, uh, you mentioned that some culturally positive aspects of bootleg, especially, you know, bootleg records that flourished in the, in the 70s, 60s, and 70s. Um, what, can you discuss that? Just yeah, a bit? sure. Um, you know, this is, this is, I should say, just you know, for the point of acknowledging it, that uh, I really uh, rely uh, heavily on uh, Clint Highland's book, Bootlegging, because there hasn't been a whole lot of work done on this beyond what he did, or better than what he did. And his is a history of people making their own concert tapes and releasing them on record or later on tape or later on CD, and also of people getting hold of unreleased studio stuff and putting it out. And this is, um, this is a really interesting situation in which you uh, rest artistic control from the art artists themselves or from the musicians themselves. They might not be willing to put this stuff out. I mean, regardless of the question of ownership and who gets the money from the sale, they might have an artistic objection. I think that gets very interesting sometimes. If you record a concert and you think, oh, this is terrific, you could very well get in a situation where you then go to the co company and say, hey, I got this great tape at the concert. Would you like to have it? I don't even want any money for it. I just It's just so great. I want to share it with the world. Would you put it out? I guarantee the answer will be no. There's just something uh, about that corporate world that, you know, I don't know if it's a pissing contest. I don't know what it is. But they don't want someone else to do something like that. And consequently, with few exceptions, Grateful Dead being the biggest exception who encouraged it and made a sort of uh, a career of doing it. With few exceptions, artists strongly disapprove of anyone putting out their music without authorization. It's become a, an industry, uh, bootleg albums, and 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 tend to use the word bootleg to distinguish it from pirate copies, i.e. just take something that's out there, make a copy of it. They've been using the word bootleg for bootleg albums just to try to make a semantic difference, indicating that there's, there's some aesthetic thing going on here that isn't merely copying, but has to do with releasing an artist's repertoire beyond what's released in the studio. So then where do we stand today? I mean, we're in, with music sharing. We, we just, you know, the last 10 minutes, 15 minutes, we talked about party tapes, mixing, all this. Well, you know, we both work at colleges, and, and you know, you know that our 20-year-olds, that's, that's what you do. You, you pick and choose songs off of the Internet, and you 
you put them on your your MP3 player. It, it, and what? Where do we stand today? Uh, I think that um, that the cat is out of the bag. Is that the expression? Uh, I think it's out of the bag and it's running around. It's running around. <laughs> uh, it's this fantastic opportunity, not just them, but me too. I'm doing it. I can do, you know, highfalutin musical sh- scholarship in ways I never could do before because so many tunes have been posted on the web in various ways, legitimate and not. And I can have a question and answer it and uh, even educationally teach somebody something about music through what I've found by MP3 files on the web or uh, YouTube postings on the web. Uh, Same thing. Um, It's fantastic. It has revolutionized how we understand music, what we can do with it, how we might manipulate it, how we can share it with anyone, anywhere. The cat is so running around. Um, There's continuing lamentation about loss of CD sales with very little admission of the fact that uh, most people don't want to listen in that way anymore because uh, the digital file, the uh, computer-based version of listening is so much more flexible and suits so many more needs. It's even more mobile. You know, if you're going for a jog, you don't have to take your Sony Walkman CD player, which is lumpy. You can take a nice little tiny thing if it doesn't weigh as much. And it's not going to skip. And it's not going to skip. <laughs> That's right. So... How is the industry slash monopolist dealing with with the digital age? You know, I think they're really not. I think they're just still fighting battles that they lost years ago. I think they're completely overwhelmed by it. I think they're desperate and don't know what to do. Um, is iTunes an example of an attempt anyway? Well, I think that's really on the other side. I think... As I understand it, as I read about it in interviews, that was a matter of Steve Jobs saying, you guys are idiots, you don't get it. People want this music. Uh, You have to sign this agreement, and he badgered them for two or three years, and they finally gave in, and then, you know, he sold I don't know how many billion copies at 90 cents, 99 cents each. Um, I think that iTunes and other legitimate pay for MP3 services are good uh, in that you have an almost guaranteed chance of getting the song you want, at least in popular music. They're pretty clueless about classical and do really stupid things. But since we're talking about popular music today, it's really great for that you lessen the chance of getting a virus or malware or some sort of horrible thing or a spoof, somebody intentionally trying to to tell you the wrong thing uh, under the title of the tune you were looking for. It, it, it's, it's a cleaner thing if you can deal with iTunes or uh, Amazon or Rhapsody or Spotify or Last.fm and these others that are offering legitimate uh, sales of MP3 tunes, but I have a feeling that there's still only a small percentage of what's actually circulating out there, and that they're, uh, they've become a sort of an after-the-fact reaction to the cat being so far out of the bag. I'm not sure how far we should go with that metaphor, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, they're a kitten. They're a little tiny kitten compared to, <laughs> to to what's circulating out there without authority, without somebody getting their 99 cents. Well, I, I ask my students, and, and, you know, very few of them say they pay for their the music they buy, they get now that they download. And they're upfront about it. They don't see why we <laughs> have to. 
And it just doesn't make any sense. Well, to them. the other thing that 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 I think is so interesting is the rhetoric about causing losses to songwriters, because um, the losses are to corporations, and there aren't. There are a few mega hit, huge writers who really will be hurt by this, but mostly it's a corporate battle, and mostly in my life of trying to be a musician, uh, the people I know laugh at royalties because the numbers are so small of what they actually get as artists. And yet, uh, everybody seems to have just laid down and accepted this argument that, oh, the poor songwriter is being hurt by MP3 distribution. Well, I... You know, I, I've maybe met one person for whom that's true, uh, and maybe the system is constructed that way, and it's supposed to be. Maybe it's only supposed to privilege one musician in 10,000, and the other 9,999, well, that's too bad. They're trying to make it. They're not good enough. But I suppose that's a viewpoint. Uh, to me, the, the the whole copyright thing is just fallen apart. It was a flawed system and now it's gone beyond flawed and it's broken. Well, Barry, um, it's a great book. It's a great story. Uh, thanks for being on. What What are you up to now? Are you Are you working on another book of any kind? Um, no, not at the moment. I, I don't have an idea for another book. I'm mulling over things. Well, I have an idea, but I'm not nothing that I want to say. <laughs> I to I've been doing a lot of transcribing for the Smithsonian Jazz Oral History Program. And, and that's, ah. that's fascinating. They, the people who win the, uh, jazz, the NEA Jazz Master Award get a two-day interview, and then I transcribe and edit them. I don't do the interviews, but I do that, and that's, that's really been fun. I just learned so much about the jazz life and how these very greatest musicians think about it. So that's, that's what I'm doing now off of. Okay. Well, um, our hour's up and even more. Yeah, so, I, hope uh, I didn't break the bank on that one. No, 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 no bank being broken. The cat is still in the bag <laughs> here. Uh, so thanks a lot, Barry, and um, good luck in your future All endeavors. Right, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a conversation with Will Hermes about his book, Love Goes to Buildings on Fire, Five Years in New York That Changed Music Forever, published by Faber and Faber in 2011. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.